Welcome back, everyone, to Rounding the News. This is your weekly news roundup brought to you by Rounding the Earth, hosted by me, Liam Sturgis. You'll notice I'm in my brand new office here in outer space, courtesy of the magic of green screen. So let's jump right in. Once again, we're going to break down today's topics into health, law, economy, geopolitics, environment, and culture. But there's going to be a little bit of a twist on the culture part today. And as usual, in the chat on Rockfin, YouTube, and Rumble, let me know if you can hear and see me just fine. I'll be keeping my eye on the comments. So October 7, 2022, here's what we're going to go over. Health, we got the citizens hearing that's done a wonderful new live stream and also monkey carditis that appears to be mutating in the law front. California Ministry of Truth goes live and the economy gas price. hits a record high in Vancouver and everywhere else. Obviously, geopolitics, Russia officially absorbs contested regions in Ukraine on the environmental side. Let's fight climate change with climate change. Yeah. And culture, meet the foundations running the FDA. I think you'll like them. Okay, so let's do this. First things first, uh, on the health side, Citizens Hearing Roundtable took place with doctors Eric Payne and Chris Milbert on Wednesday this week, where I had the pleasure of helping out behind the scenes during this first roundtable discussion hosted by a Citizens Hearing, the Community Inquiry Initiative, led by Sonia Anderson of the Canadian COVID Care Alliance. You may remember at the end of June 2022, so this year, I got to fly out to Toronto to participate in the uh, very, uh, very productive Citizens Hearing event. Um, and uh, you can check that out at citizenshearing.ca. So now there's a series of live stream roundtable discussions that are following it up. It, this particular one was a wonderful and wide ranging discussion uh, with both of these doctors, both of whom were speaking out early against the actions taken by their provincial governments and suffered very familiar consequences for their dissidents. What I didn't realize until Wednesday is that both doctors are still practicing. Dr. Milburn is now seeing patients in a small town called Sydney, while Dr. Payne was rehired by his original place of work in Alberta. This is fantastic news. And as Dr. Payne points out during the live stream, it's also a sign that the system is acknowledging that these brave doctors were right all along. So you can watch that video on the Rumble channel for Citizens Hearing or on the front page at www.citizenshearing.ca. All right, moving on. Also in the health area, we got monkeypox, mutation, and myocarditis. Let's add yet another supposed or suspected cause behind the recent spike in heart problems, monkeypox. As per this case study published by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention as an early release for a December issue, quote, this is the abstract, we report to immunocompetent and otherwise healthy adults in the United States who had monkeypox and required hospitalization for viral myocarditis. Both patients were unvaccinated against orthopox viruses. They had shortness of breath or chest pain and elevated cardiac biomarkers. No immediate complications were observed. They were discharged home after symptoms resolved. So my challenge to you, the audience, is this. After reading the paper in full, what is your best estimation of the situation? In your 
likely non-medical opinion, perhaps we have some medical doctors here as well, does the evidence in the details provided show a likely correlation between the diagnoses of myocarditis and monkeypox in these two patients? And finally, what other virus is mentioned as a comorbidity or co-infection that seems to counteract the notion that these patients were, as they say, immunocompetent? Keep in mind that monkeypox is not behaving the way that it is allegedly supposed to, based on historical examples. Given that, it's important to remember the role of polymerase chain reaction, or PCR, in the diagnosis of monkeypox. Now, the links for this, all of the show notes, are available in the description of this video. The first link takes you to liamsturgis.substack.com, where you should find the latest post uh, to be uh, the show notes for this episode. Lowell asks, any lesions, any pustules, anything? So Lowell, this is now your homework. Read it, tell me what you find. Um, so there you go. So that's where you'll find the notes to and the links to all of these things. Um, in fact, I will see, I will copy this and paste it into the comments on YouTube and Rockfin. See, we're doing this in live time, ladies and gentlemen. And opening up Rumble. Do 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 do. We are live, live on Rumble. Okay, very good. So there you go. Now in the comments of all three of our live stream platforms, you have the show notes directly. Okay, so here's why I emphasize PCR uh, being so important here uh, to remember. Uh, this: <laughs> the monkeypox virus is mutating. Are scientists worried? As you can see, the byline, in some samples, large chunks of the virus's genome have disappeared. But understanding whether the mutations affect its behavior will be difficult. I'm just going to read a little bit of this here. As researchers at the Minnesota Department of Health in St. Paul were sequencing samples of the monkeypox virus a few months ago. Oh, interesting. They made a surprising discovery. I didn't realize it was already a few months ago. But in one sample collected from an uninfected person, a large chunk of the virus's genome was missing. And another chunk had moved to an entirely different spot in the sequence. Crystal Gigante, good name, a microbiologist at the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta, Georgia, was called in to help examine the mutations. She and her colleagues found similar deletions and rearrangements in a handful of other monkeypox genomes collected in the United States, according to a report that they posted on September 17th, my birthday, on the preprint server BioRxiv. Bio I, I haven't figured out how to pronounce that yet. That has not undergone peer review. It's funny how when they're posting something, Preprints are fine, but, you know, not for dissidents. Anyway, point is, your second assignment is to read this article in its entirety, again, in the show notes, and identify an alternative explanation as to why the samples amplified by PCR may not match the genetic sequences these scientists expect to find. Pro tip, Rounding the Earth has talked about this. Uh, GigaOm Biological, Jay Cooey, his recent streams have talked about this and the entire debacle and discussion around Dan Wilson, debunk the funk and his disagreements with Jay Cooey, Kevin McKernan and Matthew of Running the Earth. All of these 
uh, are going to give you some information to help debunk this. Yes, the world is in fact full of Virgos. And uh, I hate to get gross here, but let's just say Valentine's Day is nine months before. I got gross here. Did I need to do that? No. Um, anyway, Lowell, if it was your birthday uh, recently, if you are also a Virgo, then happy belated birthday. Okay, we're going to move into law now. <laughs> I mean, everyone's heard this now. The Ministry of Truth goes live in California. Want informed consent? Speak out against California's new misinformation law as posted in Children's Health Defense, originally via Dr. Merrill Nass's substack. California Gavin Newsom has signed into law Bill AB 2098, allowing the state to revoke the medical licenses of doctors who say things the government doesn't like. This is a dangerous precedent, as explained by Dr. Merrill Nass. And now I quote, California is a lost cause, and the people know it. Between April 2020 and July 2021, California lost nearly 1% of its population. This is the first time in recorded history that California has seen a drop in population. California's legislators will vote for anything when instructed to do so. I can only recommend that its honest doctors relocate, along with so many others who are leaving the Golden State for greener pastures. What about the rest of the country? This is a shot across the bow. Elected officials are important, and so are clean elections. If we let this continue, soon there will be nowhere to go. Good people need to run for office. Good people need to get to know their candidates. The misinformation slash disinformation meme has worked for the bad guys so far. We need to challenge it wherever we find it. We need to talk about how it has been used as a major strategy to silence the opposition. Censorship may be, in fact, the biggest threat to our democracy. For patients who want the right to obtain honest information from their physicians and want to have choices regarding their medical treatment, now is the time to speak up. The screws are tightening. This could be your last chance. Now, a reminder that, uh, in fact, not just the United States, which has very significant midterm elections coming up where you'll vote for your members of Congress and uh, a number of other items on the ballot. Canada is also going through a wave of uh, general elections. In fact, in Alberta, we just had a new premier voted in um, and uh, uh, Danielle Smith, who is replacing uh, Jason Kenney, who is largely responsible for uh, making some very big COVID errors and um, not in the way that the mainstream likes to paint. Francois Legault, Premier of Quebec, has been re-elected by a large margin, which has surprised, well, surprise might be the wrong word, has disappointed many. And here I live in West Vancouver, a suburb of Vancouver, and uh, I, along with every other part of British Columbia, am going to have to go to the ballot soon to uh, vote in basically everyone, our new mayor, our new city council, our uh, board, uh, school trustees. So this is an important time. I'll share an anecdote. Yesterday, I was honored to have a lovely lunch with Carl Harrison, who you may have seen on our roundtable discussion, Citizen versus State, a couple weeks ago. And we talked about a lot of things, but one of them was this. And I asked him, what do we do about these candidates who we have in our area, none of whom seem to be a good choice. Carl told me the best thing you can do is, like if you're in an abusive romantic relationship, so too do we find ourselves in an abusive election relationship. Our representatives 
have abused us over the last two years at every level of government. And in the case of a domestic abuse situation, a lot of abused people find themselves unable to leave, even though they know they should and they have to. But they're stopped by the fear of the unknown. So they, they stay with the devil they know. He said, now obviously these are different situations, but the logic applies here too. Instead of trying to identify the perfect best candidate out of the batch, step one is to get out. Get rid of the abusers. So anybody who over the last two years who has been enacting, supporting, or even standing, standing idly by as these COVID and related, you know, oppressive measures have, have been in place. Um, it's time for them to go. So that makes my life a little easier. Not that much easier, though. Uh, iPro Inc. confirms that BioArchive is a good pronunciation. Thank you so much, sir. That helps me a lot. In any case, I digress there for a moment, but this is just a reminder, folks. There are some who feel the best thing to do is to not vote. Uh, I'm not sure if, if that has benefit, strategic benefit, moral benefit. I recommend whoever you vote for, go out and vote. Lowell says, vote the incumbent out. Precisely. Let's start there. But make your own choice. Just make sure it's an informed choice, which is Dr. Nass's point with this article. But let's move on to the economy. Something else to consider, depending on who you're voting back in or, or uh, uh, voting someone new in, gas price hits yet another record high in Vancouver. Now, I say Vancouver specifically because it was Vancouver specifically. I know what you're thinking. Putin's at it again. Now that all four disputed regions in eastern Ukraine have voted to join Russia, which we'll get to in a minute, that absolute dictator has flexed his magical economic powers to hit the citizens of the West right in the pocketbook. How else could we explain the record-breaking jump in gas prices in Vancouver? We have from CTV News Vancouver, another day, another North American gas price record set in Metro Vancouver. As experts predicted Thursday of last week, when gas prices in the lower mainland in Greater Victoria, which is where I live, soared to 239.9 cents per liter, the price went up again on Friday. Some stations in Vancouver were advertising a liter of regular for 241.9 cents on Friday, the second consecutive day that the region has set an all time record. The latest surge in the cost of gas has been blamed on local factors in the Pacific Northwest, specifically maintenance on a major refinery and pipeline. Prices elsewhere in Canada have not been spiking. That has since changed. Keep in mind, this was a week ago. It is driven only by local factors here on the West Coast and generally in North America. It has nothing to do with international oil markets at this time, said Wernan Antweiler, an economics professor at the University of British Columbia's Sauter School of Business on Thursday, a school which turned me down, by the way. Apparently, I didn't quite hit the 99% average you need to get in. But anyway, I'll point out right off the bat, they say it's blamed on local factors in the Pacific Northwest, which refers to the Vancouver, you know, British Columbia, Oregon, Washington State region. But then in the following line, they say, uh, you know, it's, it's the West Coast and also generally the rest of North America. So is it specific to the Pacific Northwest or not? I don't know. But regardless, my bad, I guess this is what they meant when they coined that phrase about making assumptions. You know, assuming Russia's behind everything might make a 
um, a donkey's behind uh, out of you and me. Um, so first, I know we've got a lot of American viewers. Let's put that price into perspective for our American audience. So the price in Canadian dollars is $2.42 per liter. There are 3.785 liters in a gallon. So I could pay $9.15. Well, let's, oh man, how do we do this? $9.156? No, that's not right. $9.15 basically per gallon. Canadian. Now, Google told me that the Canadian dollar was worth basically 73 cents US as of Saturday, October 1st, which is when I ran this calculation, making the price $6.62 US per gallon. So that is the comparative mark. We are paying here in Canada $6.62 per gallon. Put in the comments what you're paying currently. And I know it is a little different across the United States. I know California was, it probably continues to be the worst, but prices vary across the United States. The Economic Times of India published a list on September 29th that broke down the cheapest options in a variety of locations. New York, New York, at Bola Market, the cost was $3.39 per gallon. In LA, at Arco, you can get a gallon of gas for $5.79. Look at that. We beat them. And as you go down the line, you'll see at Circle K in Texas, in Houston, you can get it for $2.89 a gallon. And, uh, you know, San Jose was also up there at $5.79. So it's expensive, and we beat you. Now, uh, I wonder how people are feeling about this whole green uh, situation now. And I need to look more into what they're talking about with local refinery maintenance and all that. I wasn't able to pinpoint that at the time. But we mentioned Putin. I like this picture. Geopolitics. Russia annexes four contested regions of Ukraine. This past week, Russian President Vladimir Putin officially signed into law the recognition of the four formerly contested eastern regions of Ukraine as part of Russia. CBC News doesn't like this very much. Frankly, the word sham has appeared across every news story I can find in the mainstream, referring to the referendums that were held in each region to vote on whether or not to join Russia. Of course, that can be explained by the fact that the Associated Press is authoring the vast majority of these pieces. They're simply being repeated across uh, uh, all these outlets. Happy birthday, Vlad. Is it Vladimir Putin's birthday? Hmm. Interesting. Someone fact checked that for me. But if that is the case, then yes, happy birthday, Vladimir Putin. Um, yeah. Uh, Associated Press is the dominant newswire service in North America or one of them. Uh, so you can you can read this article or really any other mainstream article for their take, which will be more or less the exact same. Vladimir Putin is 70. That's insane. Well, he looks good for 70, I suppose. In any case, thank you for that information. So just to give some comparison uh, or, or some visual reference, these are the four areas that uh, have just now officially, to be clear, become part of Russia. These and, and as far as I understand, this is going by international law. So whether it's a good idea or not, whether you support it or not, at least for now, I believe it's my understanding this has been done legally. No further opinion will be given at this point. 
I will say, though, that uh, you'll see in, in 20, I believe, 14 it was, this area of Crimea was annexed. And now um, we have this entire uh, basically eastern side that has voted to join. So there you go. That's that. Uh, and they are the Donetsk, Luhansk, Kherson, and Zaporizhia. Zaporizhia? Nah. Uh, so yeah. All right, let's move on to environment. Oh, here he goes. He's getting crazy now, guys. So this is the environment part. Let's use solar geoengineering to fight climate change. Okay. An alternative headline could be, it's time to fight human-caused climate change with more human-caused climate change. So in an opinion piece written, uh, or sorry, published by the Antonio Express News, Hamid Baladi and Amitrajit A. Batabia, economics and business professionals, I understand, wrote the following. Okay. Scientists, economists, and policymakers throughout the world now agree that climate change is the most serious environmental problem confronting humankind today. Although the long-term changes in temperatures and weather patterns that we are talking about are caused, at least to some extent, by natural forces, there is consensus today that at least since the 1800s, human activities have been the primary factor in making climate change the salient problem that is today. To address this problem, economists and policymakers have generally advocated for the use of price or tax and quantity control carbon credit instruments. Efforts have largely been concentrated on creating the right incentives to get people and firms to diminish their use of fossil fuels and move towards more renewable energy sources. Occasionally, politicians have advocated the use of bans. California Governor Gavin Newsom, our favorite, recently stated that by 2035, his state would ban the sales of new gasoline-powered cars and light trucks. I wonder what a light truck is. Maybe a Ford F-150. The hope here is that such an act will provide a forceful nudge to state residents to drive more electric vehicles that typically have no tailpipe emissions and occasionally no ability to charge. It's time to think of new solutions to fight climate change. This means thinking seriously about solar geoengineering or climate engineering. This kind of engineering encompasses two kinds of technologies, carbon dioxide removal and, most intriguingly, sunlight reflection methods. The relevant technology involves injecting sulfate aerosols into the stratosphere so that more sunlight bounces off the Earth's atmosphere instead of being absorbed by the Earth with its, quote, blanket covering. The basic point is that sunlight reflection methods, including stratospheric aerosol injection, can compensate for the negative effects of climate change by cooling planet Earth. I don't know about you guys, but this sounds to me like the definition of human-made climate change. How much more intrusive can you get than to literally pollute the air to block out the sun? Or nuclear winter? In fact, in one other article that I looked at that we're going to see in a bit, I don't have the graphic for what I'm about to reference, but the, they compared the technology to the effects of a volcano, a huge vault like Mount St. Helen style volcano or Yellowstone. They're saying we want to replicate a large volcanic explosion, which, by the way, historically has killed a lot of people. You know, vitamin D, low vitamin D levels remain one of the, if not the primary factor for death from COVID-19. In any case, 
Man, I didn't even get into the nuclear stuff today. Okay, so then I thought I thought this Chinese proverb that I found on Google was good. No matter how tall the mountain, it cannot block out the sun. Let's take that with us in the week ahead. Um, anyway, I'm not someone who engages in the chemtrail subject much at all. Though you can imagine how dissidents on various topics, you know, conspiracy theorists, wind up being relegated to the same circles at a certain point in terms of online discussion. Frankly, I'm starting to identify some gaps in the logic of the official rebuttal that have caught my attention. And the entire premise of chemtrails as a good thing is clearly going more mainstream anyway. In 2016, though, the Smithsonian Magazine proudly boasted that science had officially debunked chemtrails. Of course, they made sure to equate people asking about weird streaks in the sky to people who think lizards rule the world. Stay classy, Smithsonian. Well, let me try that again. Stay classy, Smithsonian. Anyway. Yeah, science officially demands that the conspiracy will likely live on. But these days, oh, sorry. So this is from the article itself. These days, it's a common sight. Hazy streaks crisscrossing the sky left from passing aircrafts. But many people believe there's something more going on. Dubbing the contrails, or condensation trails, chemtrails, conspiracy theorists have claimed that these trails of condensed water are part of a secret program to control the weather, change the climate, or control our minds. And you'll notice, of course, that control the weather and change the climate both have references. They want you to click through and, you know, they've got more to say on that. But control our minds is just sort of added in there. Hmm. Funny how they do that. Conspiracy theorists have amassed, amassed huge dossiers of evidence claiming the chemtrails are longer, brighter, and do not dissipate as quickly as normal aircraft contrails. They have photos, anecdotes, and samples collected from the air and water. Though scientists have long battled against these unfounded claims, they haven't made much headway. But with a recent study, researchers from the Carnegie Institution of Science hope to put these rumors to rest. Okay, but wait, what's this? Only two years later, CBS News comes out with this controversial spraying method aims to curb global warming. From the article, I quote, a fleet of 100 planes making 4,000 worldwide missions per year could help save the world from climate change. Also, it might be relatively cheap. That's the conclusion of a new peer-reviewed study in environmental research letters. It's the stuff of science fiction. Or you might say conspiracy theory. Planes spraying tiny sulfate particles into the lower stratosphere, around 60,000 feet up. The idea is to help shield the Earth from just enough sunlight to help keep temperatures low. Taz says, perhaps solar blocking isn't a great idea if we are in the early years of a GSM, which I believe refers to a global solar minimum or a grand solar minimum. Correct me in the chat, as some claim. Yes, I've heard this. Uh, I haven't gotten into too much detail, uh, but I have I have heard um, something along these lines that I understand to be not a conspiracy theory. Perhaps if you want to elaborate, Taz, in the chat, that would be helpful. Um, I agree, though, that there's there's no good reason to block the sun out. That's, I'm just going to say that. Uh, okay. Uh, you know, those, those conspiracy theorists over at CBS always spin in those yarns. But look, they are real scientists. They brought a diagram. So anyway, yes, grand solar minimum. Thank you for, uh, for clarifying. Okay. Now, uh, you know, 
we can go forever on and on and so forth. I don't know what's actually going on with the skies. Uh, I only can focus on so many things at once, as can we all. All I know is this. I smell nonsense somewhere. How about you? I can't speak for the veracity of this website, really, but I've previously turned to Geoengineering Watch. When I've chosen to dip my toes into the area, let me know what you think and if you have any other good resources. And now, a word from our sponsor. IPAC-EDU offers free intro lessons. Yes, that's right. Our good friends, uh, James Lyons-Weiler and many others now, teaching at IPAC-EDU, they've now listed a whole bunch of awesome free introductory lessons for a variety of their many courses, which you can then sign up for uh, to complete in full. Visit their Vimeo page, again, link in the show notes on Substack, to try them out. And when you complete your registration for the full courses, use coupon code EARTH to save 5% off your tuition. And another reminder, you can support the show most directly by using the wonderful features built into Rockfin, YouTube, and Rumble Rants. On YouTube, you can give us a super chat. On Rumble Rants, or on Rumble, you can give us a Rumble Rant, which is a paid comment. And then on Rockfin, you can donate using the nice $5 tip button. If you can afford to, I know these are difficult times for many, uh, but if you can afford to, it helps us continue to make videos and expand our infrastructure and bring more people on board. So that's the best way to do that. All right, let's move on to the FDA. We're already half an hour in, and we've just hit the main story, ladies and gentlemen understanding the capture of the FDA. So this is usually the culture section, which usually has been reserved for the discussion of pop culture. But I wanted to borrow this space instead to introduce you to some friends. You may not have met them yet, and it's important you become familiar with them sooner rather than later. So, the revolving door. At this point, it's no secret that the U.S. Food and Drug Administration is a captured agency. Its revolving door sees FDA commissioners go on to work in high-level positions for the pharmaceutical companies they only just regulated. A systemic issue that also exists in plain sight in banking and environmental protection. For example, former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb joined Pfizer's board of directors within only three months of leaving the agency in 2019. Good timing. Former Principal Deputy Commissioner Amy Abernethy was hired as president at Verily Life Sciences, Google's clinical research company, in June 2021. And only six months after granting emergency use authorization to Moderna's mRNA-1273 COVID-19 genetic vaccine, former Commissioner Stephen Hahn became chief medical officer at flagship pioneering, the venture capital firm that launched Moderna. Despite this open and normalized corruption, there are additional layers to the capture of the FDA that require a bit more digging to unearth and some nuance to understand. So, question, how is the FDA funded? The FDA is an agency of the United States government positioned within the Department of Health and Human Services. As such, it is funded by the American taxpayer, perhaps some of you. Budget proposals are drawn up by the President of the United States and approved 
by Congress. However, that's only one part of the story. In fact, only about half of the agency's budget comes from the federal government. The other half comes from a funding mechanism that many members of the general public are only now beginning to understand for the first time. User fees. User fees are payments made to the FDA by the companies submitting their products for review and approval by the agency. In essence, a pay-to-play fee. In other words, the FDA is funded in large part by the industries it is mandated to regulate. Quite clearly, they do not bother to hide the corruption anymore. Well, oh, sorry. The FDA's budget for 2020 was 5.9 billion US dollars. Of this, 45% came from user fees. In 2021, the budget increased to $6.1 billion, 46% of which was paid by industry. That came to $2.8 billion last year. I repeat, $2.8 billion of that $6.1 billion budget came from pharmaceutical food uh, tobacco industries. While the FDA's mandate covers food, tobacco, and medicine, over 55% of its budget is dedicated to pharmaceutical and biotechnological activities. Obviously, this represents a substantial sum of money that would cause serious problems should it no longer be available to the agency. The entire foundation of the FDA's operations rests on the sustained and growing stream of funding from Big Pharma. However, user fees are not the only way the FDA is influenced politically and financially by the pharmaceutical industry. This is where a bunch of you will be learning something for the first time. Taz, thank you as always for being part of the show. We'll see you again very soon. In the meantime, there are a number of nonprofit organizations whose primary focus is improving the FDA through money or suggestion, while also lobbying the United States government to further increase the agency's budget year upon year. Let's meet a few of them. First, the Reagan Udall Foundation for the FDA. The Reagan Udall Foundation for the Food and Drug Administration sometimes referred to just as the FDA Foundation, was established by the United States Congress in 2007 with this nice bill here. Officially, it operates as a government agency independent of the FDA. However, its mandate is to, quote, help support and promote the FDA's regulatory science priorities. Okay, this is a public-private partnership that allows the FDA to operate in conjunction with industry, while at least on paper, avoiding conflicts of interest. In reality though, the FDA and its foundation functionally operate as two branches of the same organization, the regulatory arm and the research and development arm. What about funding? Funding for the FDA foundation, their annual budget and funding in general has nearly doubled over the COVID-19 period. In 2019, the foundation's reported revenue was $2,779,470. This jumped in 2020 to $4,900,019 and so dollars. 
and then again to $5,503,000 some dollars in 2021. The FDA itself accounts for $1,250,000 of that funding each year, which if you go through these annual reports, you will see has remained consistent. Uh, With the rest of the money coming from grants, donations, research contracts, fundraising events, and investment income. As of 2021, 77.3% of the foundation's funding came from industry and private philanthropic interests. Among these financial supporters are organizations directly invested in the COVID-19 pandemic. The pharmaceutical companies behind the first round of COVID-19 genetic vaccines all contribute. Across these three slides, you'll find Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Janssen, along with their parent company, Johnson & Johnson, and the above-mentioned flagship pioneering, the venture capital firm that launched Moderna. You can pause the video and go through and look at these to make sure I'm not making stuff up. And of course, these annual reports are in the show notes. Other companies listed here currently developing their own COVID-19 vaccine products are also funders, including Bayer, Novartis, Sanofi, and Takeda. Further funders include companies developing and distributing high-dollar patented treatments for COVID-19, such as AbbVie, Amgen, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Eli Lilly, Genentech, Gilead Sciences of Remdesivir fame, and Merck. Even more pharmaceutical funding comes from industry organizations, including the Biotechnology Innovation Organization, Consumer Healthcare Products Association, and Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America. In addition to the already listed pharmaceutical companies, the membership of these various organizations also include Moderna itself, along with Novavax, Medicago, Emergent Biosolutions, who manufactured AstraZeneca and Janssen's COVID shots at various stages, and National Resilience, who is a CIA-linked operation that manufactures Moderna's mRNA products, the, the actual genetic part. So that's good. And then finally, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation are both substantial donors. Both of these foundations, as we all know by now, have developed substantial portfolios of pharmaceutical investments, both in the private and public sector, and stand to profit heavily from the FDA's favorable recommendations towards pharmaceutical products in general. But the COVID-19 vaccine confidence project is something we need to look at. Because the FDA can't openly promote COVID-19 vaccines due to their supposedly limited regulatory role, it outsourced this task to the FDA Foundation. This was done through a mixture of institutional capture, as we've seen, and behavioral psychology projects. Another federal agency called the National Science Foundation funded an initiative at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security called the Working Group on vaccine, on Readying Populations for COVID-19 Vaccine. The group proposed a social and behavioral research agenda to facilitate COVID-19 vaccine uptake, leading the FDA to tap the FDA Foundation to run a $209,000 project called the COVID-19 Vaccine Confidence Project in the fall of 2020. This represents a significant investment in resources and attention from the federal government 
to maximizing uptake of these shots before there were any authorized for use instead of mm, objectively evaluating the safety and efficacy of the COVID-19 genetic vaccines and conducting a cost-benefit analysis, the FDA directly funded and engaged in pre-marketing campaigns using behavioral psychology while receiving significant funding from the pharmaceutical companies that developed these very products. This next bit will go nicely with Matthew Crawford's The Chloroquine Wars on the Rounding the Earth substack. The FDA Foundation also spent $1,219,000 some dollars in 2020 and 2021 on an initiative called the COVID-19 Evidence Accelerator in collaboration with a lobbying organization called Friends of Cancer Research. One outcome of this initiative was a study that undermined the use of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin by offering the drugs only to hospitalized patients who were already late into their disease, contrary to the well-established protocols using that pair of drugs for outpatient treatment in the early phase of illness. This is yet another conflict of interest. In order to legally award an emergency use authorization to the COVID-19 vaccine candidates, there must not exist any other viable treatment for COVID-19. That means it was favorable for the FDA's pharmaceutical funders, for the FDA not to acknowledge the safety and efficacy of drugs like HCQ and azithromycin or the many, many others for use in treating COVID-19, compromising the integrity of the regulatory process. Seems legit, right? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe these are safe and effective. But let's look at another. In addition to direct financial contributions, the FDA's funding is bolstered by a lobbying group called the Alliance for a Stronger FDA. Unlike the Reagan Udall Foundation, the Alliance is not a government body and overtly in its mission statement represents the voice of the pharmaceutical industry. Its primary activities involve lobbying the United States Congress to increase the annual budget for the FDA providing more funding to its agency and for its partners to conduct research and development projects favorable to industry. The Alliance spent $855,000 on its lobbying activities between 2019 and 2021. As an industry association, oh yeah, there's the Open Secrets uh, funding info. As an industry association, the membership of the Alliance for a Stronger FDA is made up of pharmaceutical companies and other industry coalitions. Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson are both members, as are AbbVie, Amgen, Eli Lilly, Merck, and Sanofi, all of whom have direct interest in COVID-19 vaccine products and therapeutics under consideration by the FDA, as previously detailed. AstraZeneca was a founding member of the Alliance. Nonprofit organizations and industry associations who are members of, uh, of the Alliance 
include the Advanced Medical Technology Association, Alliance for Aging Research, Alliance for Patient Access, Alliance for Regenerative Medicine, Biotechnology Innovation Organization, Consumer Healthcare Products Association, International Society for Stem Cell Research, Personalized Medicine Coalition, Pharma and Biopharma Outsourcing Association, and Research America. Sifting through this web of nonprofits I just listed, among others, you find the same pharmaceutical companies that fund the FDA Foundation. Oxford Biomedica, AstraZeneca's partner in developing their own COVID-19 vaccine, can now also be added to our list through its membership in the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine. And there you have it. Now you know a little bit more about the FDA. Tell your friends, because I guarantee most of them still think that the FDA is at least somewhat independent. It's not. Well, thank you for tuning in again this week, and I look forward to bringing you even more educational and interesting content over the next week. Stay tuned for a special episode with Matthew Crawford tonight, where he will be discussing the entire story of the DMED saga, the De Department of Defense Epidemiological uh, Medical Epidemiology. I don't know. He'll explain it better. But tune in tonight. I think it's at 6 p.m. Pacific. I may be wrong, um, but it is going to be scheduled on all the platforms very shortly. So you'll be able to open up the tab and wait for it to start. Uh, I suggest the best way, again, to support Rounding the Earth in addition to the Super Chats and uh, YouTube uh, John Jenkins, more problems, no, no solutions offered. Well, let me put it this way. You know that old meme, knowing is half the battle? That is the first step in exercising a solution. Most people don't understand or even know where to start looking to know what goes on behind the scenes with organizations like the FDA. So all we can do as a first step is to educate and to spread the knowledge of these things if we are able to come across them. And I'm lucky to have the opportunity to sit here and research and then put together, to the best of my ability, educational things like this. You want a solution. The first one is to educate your friends and family, which is not an easy task, but none of this is easy. We've been put in a tremendously difficult situation, not just with COVID, with a whole bunch of things. And the solutions are going to be just as difficult. But the biggest thing and the purpose of this show is to round out the news. You take the news, which can be jagged and, you know, completely flat, as in, you know, it, it's got no heartbeat to it, or flat in the sense of, you know, nonsense. And we round that out. We give a, a better rounded view of what's going on. At least that's what we try to do. So I agree. We have to focus less on problems and more on solutions. I think I'm doing that. But, John, if you have any suggestions for how I can, uh, or anyone, frankly, can move even further into the solutions column, it's your job to offer more help. Please start offering some solutions. I want so hard to believe in you guys. So were you watching when... We were talking about the California bill that just came out. And we talked about specifically one solution to address these elections coming up and how to pick which candidate, if any, will be the one you pick. 
John, I, I, I think you're earnest. So go back, rewatch, and I suggest write down anything that sounds like it might be a solution. And if you come up with nothing, come back again and we'll talk further. Because I do want to consistently improve what we do here. I just am not so sure you've watched the whole show. Also, there's nothing to believe. That's the other point. That's why we have show notes. We've got all of the resources available. Uh, right now, they're being published in the Substack format. They're in full written form. What I do is I write out, essentially, the entire script in the form of an essay with the same level of quality that I put into my, you know, when I get paid written assignments. Same thing, fully referenced, only high quality sources. And I make it clear when it's my opinion and what I believe versus what the source says. So that's what I would say. Go through, you want a solution, start if you haven't yet by going through the written notes and decide what needs to be believed versus what you can read and then confirm in your own opinion what is factual or not. Um, but the key is continue to be critical. Continue to look at people like myself and Matthew and point out where the flaws are because we need to hold all of our uh, all of our media to account. We need to hold the people who consider themselves in any way community leaders to account. And I think that's all of us. Anyone watching this video, I qualify as a community leader. So this is not me saying don't be critical. This is me saying, I think we're actually giving you some solutions. But maybe, just maybe, there's a way to do that even more. So here's my vow to you, John. I'm going to spend the next week thinking about that. And I'm going to come back. And my goal will be to move the solutions needle forward just a hair. And if I can do that, I will consider that progress. So folks, subscribe to Rounding the Earth on Substack. It remains the primary platform where the most well-written and intricate research happens. And um, you can... Yeah, subscribe there. Subscribe to YouTube, Brighteon, and Rockfin. And uh, I look forward to seeing you guys at the show tonight. I have been Liam Sturgis. You can find me at www.liamsturgis.com. And thank you again, John, and to everyone else, Taz, who participated in the show. You guys are the reason we do this, in addition to, you know, wanting to maintain some of our liberty ourselves. But I look forward to seeing you again very soon. Mm -hmm.